When, when I was in high school, when I was in high school, I took 45 minutes to get ready in the morning. It took 45 minutes to make this. <laughs> and the answer to your question is yes, I always look annoyed. <laughs> 45 minutes. And I look at that picture now and I don't think to myself, wow, what a stud. I think, how much hairspray did it take to get my hair to do that? That's what I think. I, I, I'm sorry. Apparently, the ozone problem, my use of Aquanet in the 80s contributed to that. This is no bueno. 45 minutes. And here's another version of that. Whoa. I wish I could tell you that when I went to college and I grew up, I discovered myself and I got to a point where I just didn't care what people thought anymore and that it was quick and easy, but I'd be lying. It took a long time and a lot of Jesus. When I was in grad school, the comments that professors would make on my papers would either make me or break me. When I was dating Jenny, does she think I'm all that? Does she think I'm all that? I don't know. Am I all that? Tell me, Jenny, please. Okay. And, you know, I was worried, consumed. You know, what does Jenny think of me? In my early years as a pastor, I would fret because everybody wanted to sit down and talk to Pastor Steve, and no one wanted to talk to me. Why I ever was jealous of that, I don't know. <laughs> but I, what, you don't care about me? You don't think I'm a good pastor? You know what I've discovered? Worrying too much about what other people think stresses me out. It stresses me out. It stresses you out too. It does. I have a friend who's an author. She's pretty good at it. She's knocked out several books. Uh, she belongs to an author club. Like, how do you get in one of those? Do you have to be on Amazon? Like, here's my card. I'm an author. Woo! So, but they, they encourage one another. They give each other constructive criticism. One of her books on Amazon has 72 reviews. 71 reviews are four and five star reviews. This person, we need to see more from her. She's a voice that, ah, this is one of the better things I've read. There's one review, one out of 72 that's like, loser, this is a piece of junk. When she calls me, do you know what she wants to talk about? The one review, I'm like you're not going to win him over. He's a moron, you know, move. But it's, she wants everybody to like her. I have a friend who's a pastor in a traditional church in the deep south, okay? Think Mississippi, Alabama, okay? And the, he's in a Baptist church down there. And the first year, he tr the youth group tripled in size. There are good stories coming out of people rediscovering their faith. But one of the deacons sat him down pulled out a list of what he's doing wrong. And he called me wanting to quit the ministry. One person who's like, you know, doesn't like him. Oh, a recent study of college students revealed that 62% of them, 62% of them said their self-worth is strongly tied to what other people think of them. 62%. That's crazy. It's like having 500 bosses telling you what to wear, what to drive, where to work, how to think. I mean, it's bad enough to have four or five profs you got to make happy. 500 people? That's a lot. Do we really want to spend our entire lives living under 500 bosses? That's crazy.
It's crazy. Nowhere is this more pronounced than high school, right? I don't need to tell you if you're in high school about high school. It's the girl who cried because she got an ugly haircut. It's the boy who refused to go to school because he got an ugly haircut. It's the crisis over a pimple. I had pimples so bad in high school, they were on my face, my neck, my back, my legs. Yuck, I know. Some of you are like, it's terrible, I know. It's the girl who refuses to go shopping with her friends because she doesn't have the right boots. It's the dilemma about being too ordinary or, God forbid, too different. You would think when grown-ups graduate, you would think when people graduate from high school, they would, they would think, I'm free. I'm going to leave all that what other people think stuff behind, and I'm going to walk in freedom, and I'm not going to care anymore. Grown-ups do plastic surgery. They obsess. They look in the mirror, and they're like, I'm getting old. I'm getting wrinkled. I'm like, yes, that's part of pre-dying. It happens. <laughs> you know, you're going to get wrinkles. It's a sign death is coming. You know, it's how it goes, okay? And grown-ups freak out over status. You know, I need to be more important. I need to have the title. And look, if you need to say to someone, do you know who I am? You shouldn't ask the question right? Anywhere the president goes, he doesn't need to say, do you know who I am? There's <gasps> secret service, there's the football, you know. No, okay, so people obsess over status. And then kids, I hate to tell you this, if you think your parents are bragging on you now when you're in high school and college, adults do this weird thing where there's this jockeying to, to have other people think well of them if they have a successful adult children. Well, my son just got appointed to the, you know, blah, 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 Yale University of, oh, really? Oh, you know, well, my daughter won the Nobel Prize. You know, it's kind of this, wow, <laughs> okay? Why do we care so much about what other people think? Why are we so afraid of what other people think? Why are we afraid of letting other people down? You know, perfectionists take this and ritualize it. Perfectionists take that fear of what other people think and they ritualize it. The worst thing for a perfectionist is to miss the mark, uh, to not achieve a goal, to let people down. They have excessively high standards. This guy's measuring the clippings of his grass, <laughs> okay? Uh, I know of what I speak because... I'm a recovering perfectionist, gang. In the early days, when I was working on my first graduate degree, Jenny would go to school. I've told this story before. I would sit at my computer in the afternoon and work on my thesis, and I'd write a paragraph, I'd delete it. I'd write a paragraph, I'd delete it. I'd write a paragraph, I'd delete it. She'd come home at the end of the day. So, how'd the afternoon go? Well, I wrote five or six pages. Really? Let me see. Um, I deleted them. They weren't any good. This is why, by the way, I handwrite. All, my, all the stuff I do now is handwritten in ink. I can't, even though I've recovered much from my perfectionism, I can't have a delete. Giving me a delete button's bad. <laughs> okay? Here are some signs, by the way, if you're not sure, right? You might be a perfectionist when, dot, 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 you judge yourself harshly. You judge others harshly. You obsess over commitments you get highly competitive with others. If you make a mistake, that's all you can see is the mistake. You can't see the 10 other things you did right. You feel a need to do something right or not at all. You have high standards for yourself and other people. 
Um, you're self-conscious when you make a mistake. Those might be indicators. Um, much of perfectionism, again, is driven by this need for other people's approval. If you're a perfectionist, you spend a lot of time fretting about what other people think. You do. There's a better way. There's a better way to live. There's a better way than this. I want to share with you a spiritual truth today. Whatever you think you need will control you. If you think you need money and you need to be secure, money will become your master. Making the money, managing the money, investing the money, making sure you have enough money. If beauty, if you need beauty, if you need to, people to think you're beautiful, again, you will, it will become your master. If you think you need the approval of other people to validate your life, it will become, they will become your master. So I have a simple bottom line today. Don't play to the crowds. Play to an audience of one. Don't play to the crowds. Play to an audience of one. I want to return today to the Old Testament, and I want to peer into the life of Israel's first king, where he kind of went off the rails. And I want to show you a better way to live. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today. So if you brought a Bible, you can open it up. Saul is chosen as Israel's first king. And he had what we would call in 2016, low self-esteem. You know how I know that? 1 Samuel 9, 21, Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. My family's the least important of all the families of that tribe. I'm nobody. You can feel it. You can feel it from this passage. When Samuel gathered all the tribes of Israel to announce the new king, they're all gathered. It's, and the new king of Israel is Saul, son of Kish. Saul, son of Kish. He's nowhere to be found. They find him hiding among the baggage. Poor guy. The Bible tells us, though, he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else, and God chose him not because he was taller than anyone else, but God saw something on the inside that apparently Saul couldn't see. So in chapter 15, Saul is ordered to attack the Amalekites, and he's ordered to kill every living thing. This is part of what's called the ban in the Old Testament. Men, women, children, cattle, everything. It's a terrible thing. Uh, a number of people have issues with this and some of the other things that are in the Old Testament. If that's you, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about it. Um, but I know that we humans aren't that different from God in wanting justice. I know this because I know what followed World War II. They had the Nuremberg trials. Because we as human beings were like, no, that's wrong. There's got to be some justice for what happened in Europe. So God is asking Saul to go in and to basically wipe out a city. And Saul goes, he's victorious, he wins. The Israelite army defeats the Amalekites. But Saul doesn't do everything he's commanded to do. This is verses 10, and 10 through 12. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was deeply moved when he heard this, that he cried out to the Lord all night. 
Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, hey, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Here's that low self-esteem again. When you go to Washington, D.C., one of the biggest monuments you'll encounter is the Lincoln Memorial. Lincoln didn't have to advocate for that. But here you have Saul. He's won a battle. He didn't completely obey God, and he's off kind of building a monument to himself. Aren't I great? Aren't I a great king? Tell me I'm a great king. Come on. Rub my belly. Tell me I'm awesome. So Saul encounters Samuel, and this is verses 13 and following. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I've carried out the Lord's commands. This is one of the greatest lines in scripture, by the way. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. So Saul is oblivious to the fact that he's in trouble. The, the prophet confronts him. What's this bleeding of sheep? And then Saul rationalizes and deflects. Well, we're, we're going to sacrifice these animals. I mean, I know what God commanded, but it's, it's all going to work out. And you know the army, the army took these things aside. I mean, what do I have to do with the army? I'm commander-in-chief. It's like a title thing. I mean, I'm not really in charge. And then Samuel gets to the heart of it. A couple of verses later, in verse 17, notice what Samuel says to him. Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you the king. Can't you see what God sees in you? Why are you looking for your commanders and the people and the elders to give you honor? God has honored you by choosing you among everyone to be his king. Well, Saul, the interchange continues, and Saul admits, yes, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. And here's the kicker. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. He's worried about what other people think. And he's worried more about what they think than what God wants. We know this is the case because in verses 27 to 30, as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie and will not change his mind, for he's not human that he should change his mind. And Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Notice the pronoun, the Lord, your God. In Hebrew, it's the second person pronoun. He's not even referring to God as, as his God. There's no contrition here. There's no indication that he's going to repent. It's a very different thing than what David says. David, who's the next king of Israel, is also confronted by a prophet about sinning. And David's response is this. I've sinned against the Lord. Guilty. 
it's a fascinating thing to me. Saul rejects, in a sense, what God has for him. And because he's so concerned about the appearances and what other people think, he misses out on something amazing. Now, this isn't a sermon that's like, well, don't be like Saul, be like David. It's, it's not quite that simple, gang. But when, you, when what others think is the most important thing to you, you're going to do things you really don't want to do. You're going to say things you really don't want to say. You're going to live a life that's not really yours to live. You're going to become a puppet. And that's no way to live. When you play to an audience of one, you actually gain freedom. David understood how to play to an audience of one. David, when the ark is being brought into Jerusalem, it's this wooden thing covered in gold that has the tablets that, that God gave Moses, the Ten Commandments. It's being brought in. David rips off his royal garments and he strips down to his underwear and he's dancing on the way in and his first wife is livid. She's embarrassed. She can't believe that he would disgrace himself that way. He doesn't care. Later on, he is forced to flee the capital because of this terrible sin that he's done that plays out with his sons, and one of his sons makes himself king, and it looks like David's going to lose. And so he's fleeing the capital city with a few loyal guards, and there's, there's this guy hurling insults at him from the roadside, and, and his men are like, hey, boss, got nothing to lose. I got a long blade here. I'll lop his head off right now. T say the word. And David says, no, no, no. Who knows? Maybe God is speaking through him. I don't care what other people think. When you play to an audience of one, you gain freedom. How do you respond when you're criticized? Do you get angry, bitter, resentful? Do you look for reasons to criticize back? Do you try harder to impress them? For those of you that are perfectionists, are your standards easily discerned from the Bible or are you twisting what God requires and adding things to what God requires? You believe you have to hit that standard to please God? Some other questions that help flesh that out. Do you feel guilty when you relax? Do you give up if it's not perfect on the first attempt? Do you, do you even enjoy God, or is he a harsh taskmaster for you? There's a better way. There's a better way. Oz Guinness has written a book called The Calling, and he talks in that book he talks about identity, and he talks about God. And he says this, I live before the audience of one. Before others, I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. That's freedom. That's freedom. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart uh, frequently said this, I'm never at ease in a town where I'm unknown. They gotta love me. Do you love it? Do you love the Requiem? Is it good? <laughs> Tell me. I've gotta know. Validate me. So how, how can you do this? This is hard stuff. How do, you, how do you play to an audience of one? Well, let me give you some practical Steps. Step number one, or, or one thing you can do is stop overthinking. Here's the reality. Most of the time when you think you're being judged, you're not. You want to know why? Most people are busy thinking about themselves. <laughs> 
You think they're thinking about you. No, they're thinking about them. (laughs) Okay? So stop overthinking. Develop a grateful list and go through that list either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. Here's what I have. Here's what I'm grateful for. Limit social media. Most people don't secretly hate you. This is the truth. You know, if there's somebody we should hate, it would be Hitler, right? We should all hate Hitler. That's what we're told in school. Well, a couple of years ago in Germany, this comedian took on the persona of Hitler and started dressing like him and went all around Germany and they filmed it. And when he's driving around, people were waving and cheering instead of booing, right? If Hitler can get some love in 2016, I'm pretty sure you could get some love in 2016, okay? But limit social media. Because as uh, the song says, haters are going to (laughs) hate. Another practical thing you can do is if you've got a consistent source of criticism, remove it or limit it. But at the same time, people who are your champions, people who are saying, you know what, I believe in you, you should actually invite criticism from them. But you should limit it from people that all they can do is criticize, criticize, criticize. So... Teenagers, look, if you're 14 or 16 or 20 years old, I know what I'm saying today sounds absolutely fantastical. This is like a Disney movie. You're like, yes, if only it worked out like that in real life. Well, look, in this room right now are grown-ups who believe in you and want you to do well in life. They're rooting for you quietly on the inside. They are. They want you to become a man or a woman who loves God and loves others well. If you struggle daily with what other people think, there are are youth leaders, there are people in this church that would love to sit down with you, listen, and not judge, but also point out how God sees you. All right? If you're an adult, I want to encourage you to narrow the field. Narrow the field. John Maxwell put it this way. He said, it doesn't matter if I'm a New York Times best-selling author if my wife and kids hate me. He said, success is for those closest to me to love and respect me the most. So narrow the field. Define whose opinion actually matters. And what you'll discover is it's a lot fewer people than you really think it is. For some of you, you need to walk away from social media altogether. Let's be honest. It's killing you. You go on and you compare and you see the likes or they're not liking your comments. And on the inside, every week, more of you is dying. Okay? Cut it off. You know, when guys are addicted to porn, I tell them, get rid of the internet. They're like, I can't. Yeah, but it's killing you. Get rid of the internet. Well, if, if you're dying because of social media Pull the plug for six months. You might be surprised at what it does for your overall demeanor. Last but not least, I want to recommend a cheesy children's book to you because sometimes the truth is best told by people like Fred Rogers. There's a pastor named Max Lucado who's written a book called The Wemmicks. It's a wonderful little fable 
about these wooden people that live in this wooden people village. And they spend their whole lives trying to get stars. And they get stars when they get an A, when they do something really well, when they jump off a cliff and they land successfully in their parachute. Stars, if they dress funny, if they trip up, if they do something stupid, they get dots. And in the town of the Wemmicks, there's one Wemmick where the stars don't stick on her. The dots don't stick on her because she spends time with Eli, the woodcarver, the one who made all of the Wemmicks, and she lets Eli tell her who she is and why she's valuable. And all the attempts from other people don't stick. I'm telling you, stars and dots don't matter. What matters is what God thinks. Play to an audience of one.